Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Does Title 42, which precedes Section 208, supersede Section 208? And like, generally... Let's do it it on the show, man. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ian Milheiser, ProPublica's Dara Lind. I, I feel like there's a, a biannual ritual now in which there is a surge of activity at the border and some uh, form of crisis. And we are now once again in that. Uh, Joe Biden is now president of the United States. So we are back to, I would say, the Obama era political paradigm in which you have both complaints about inhumane treatment and also complaints that efforts to be humane are in fact causing the the surge of people. Uh, But we've got a great uh, this is a great group because there are many legal as well as uh, immigration-specific issues here. Um, and conveniently, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security uh, issued a big new memo uh, this morning, right before we started recording, trying to clarify, I-, I suppose, what the actual U.S. policy is here. So, Derek, can you can you explain, like, what what is the I mean, what 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 is the actual U.S. policy toward people coming at the border? Sure. So, yeah, I uh, am not super thrilled that Secretary of Homeland Security Ali Mayorkas is trying to like supersede my and everybody else's jobs and actually like laying out, you know, here's what's going on at the border right now. But given that the kind of rhetoric around is there or isn't there a crisis has become untethered from any actual policy consequences for designating that like it's useful to just kind of start start from what is the deal right now as it has been for the last year now essentially it's coming up on exactly a year toward the end of this month the official policy of the united states and what's being put into practice at the border every day is that in general if you try to come to the united states without papers and are apprehended by border patrol you will get expelled back to mexico or to your home country uh, without any chance to seek asylum whatsoever. That's under an order that the CDC put out in March of 2020 that uses this previously obscure public health law uh, that allows the U.S. to suspend the entry of any person or you know or thing that might introduce an infectious disease into the U.S. That was, as has been revealed in subsequent reporting, the effort of the Trump White House and it's DHS to pressure the CDC to do something to like, you know, expel people under the cover of coronavirus. It is still, however, in place under the Biden administration. And the Biden administration came into office saying, you know, we're going to defer to the public health experts on this. We're going to, you know, slowly review it. And it's since become pretty apparent that they have no anticipation of getting rid of that anytime soon. So that that is in place for every adult who is apprehended coming into the U.S., which still accounts for the majority of people who are arrested. It also accounts to parents coming with children as a general rule. There's an asterisk here because earlier this year, it appears, though we haven't gotten like official, official confirmation of this, that the Mexican state of Tamaulipas, which is what borders the Rio Grande Valley, interpreted a recently passed Mexican law to say that they could not accept back families with kids under six. And so you know, a, a few hundred to a thousand families have been getting released in the Rio Grande Valley a day in recent weeks. It is the case, and Secretary Mayorkas' statement confirms, that the U.S. doesn't love this and wants to be able to expel families. That kind of leaves the population of what are called unaccompanied children, people who come to the U.S. under the age of 18 without a parent or legal guardian, which is the same population that kind of caused the resource crunch that was referred to as the border crisis in 2014. Those unaccompanied children 
are now officially exempt from the CDC order. They were initially getting expelled along with everybody else. Court stepped in. Biden administration said, we're going to walk this back. So the only people for whom U.S. policy right now is the same as it was pre-pandemic, the only people who have any chance of seeking asylum in the United States or other humanitarian status are these unaccompanied kids. And that's where, you know, there is a rise in the number of unaccompanied kids who are coming to the U.S. and presenting themselves to Border Patrol and getting put into the system. And that's where we have a resource crunch for reasons that we can get into in a little bit. But like when people are talking about a crisis on any level that isn't just top line numbers, which like kind of doesn't matter because the top line numbers are just of people who are getting pushed back immediately. That's what we're talking about is unaccompanied children. I'll add to what Dara just said that it's really striking that there is no legal process under the CDC order. I, I mean, you, you could be some if the president of El, El Salvador personally tortured you, you could have the most compelling case for asylum imaginable and you get nothing. No, no access to an immigration judge. Nothing. The statutory language says that you could be kept out of the country for as long as the government deems necessary. And. I think this would actually be upheld by the Supreme Court if it went up to them. I, I mean, Roberts and Kavanaugh, who are kind of the swingy justices right now, have said that in most cases they think that the court should defer to public health officials. And this is a CDC order, so it is a public health order. And so we have this legal void right now at the border where people who may have very compelling cases for why they should be allowed in the country can just be turned around and sent and, and sent back. Yeah, it's you know, it's worth kind of talking through the reason, Ian, that you're talking about, you know, the hypothetical of if this got into the Supreme Court, there is no there for all of the kind of narrative that everything Trump tried to do got immediately, you know, sued over and immediately enjoined by a federal judge. Like there has never been a significant broad challenge to this CDC order. There was a lawsuit focusing on children that is, you know, that ultimately resulted in this broader exemption. But even when that was happening, the there was routinely this problem where you would have to find an individual kid who was subjected to it, but you'd have to do it before they were actually expelled from the country because then they'd be out of the country and, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have the ability to press their case. And what the government was doing for a while under the Trump administration was when a child contacted a lawyer and like got added to the lawsuit, they would say, oh, you're exempted from the CDC order. We're going to put you through the normal process instead. That said, that's only been for the kids. And yes, there is a different statutory framework for unaccompanied children. You know, there's a the separate like TVPRA, which requires additional protections and tries to yoink them out of the immigration enforcement process as quickly as possible. But it is really striking that for something that, you know, and like not to toot my own horn here, but like back when this order was first issued, it was not at all clear what the actual process was. And like, I got my hands on and published guidance that made it pretty clear that a Border Patrol agent, if they decided that someone was at risk of getting tortured, could ask their supervisor, which isn't something you can easily determine in 90 minutes. Unlike the Remain in Mexico policy, which I think some people are pretty familiar with at this point, because it's been in place since the beginning of 2019, like that's a situation in which people aren't allowed to stay in the US, but they have a pending court case, they have a court date. In theory, there is a process for them to ultimately plead their case in the United States. Here, there's no record that you even tried. And so, you know, that is actually having an impact on the apprehension numbers because it's much easier to turn around and try again. And so people are getting double counted much more than they would have been in the past. But it's also you know, a very serious change from what U.S. asylum law has been and one that is indefinite and without serious challenge at this point. So I think it's worth, you know, thinking about the sort of communications challenges that exist around here, right? Because if you talk to Republicans, they will say, okay, what happened is, is Joe Biden came in and then he like threw the doors open. You know, he canceled the wall. We got these open borders Democrats and, and now we have all these people showing up and, and the system's overwhelmed. Uh, then if you look at 
the policy, it's like actually extremely little has changed since Trump was in office uh, because this incredible sort of covering memo that supersedes everything else, almost everything else at least, is still in effect. There's been really little change in actual American policy. But then that is something that the Biden administration could have said. Right. Like on day one, when they issued a broad set of day one orders, the grownups are back in charge. Joe Biden is president now. They could have said like, and we are not in any substantial way changing immigration policy at the southern border. But they did want to make a show of how they were changing things. Right. Like they they announced uh, the rescinding of certain Trump orders. They removed agreements that had been reached with Central American countries. And now I think have found themselves in a little bit of a kind of a weird dead zone where like they haven't really changed anything. And they want to say that as like a rebuttal to people who are complaining that they've changed too much. But then, like, what was the whole like, what was the whole big deal about? So I do want to push back on the idea that they didn't send that the message that things weren't changing. Like during the transition period, there was a big interview with the Salvadoran publication El Faro in which senior transition officials, people who had already gotten appointments in the future Biden administration said, this is not the time to come to the United States. The, you know, the border is closed. We are working on long-term solutions, but for now it is very dangerous. Do not come. That's the message that they've been sending at every point in the process. On the first day when they announced that they were going to stop putting people into the Remain in Mexico program, that statement had a whole paragraph in there saying, we will be allowing people who are in the MPP program to come in, but we are not allowing new people to come in. Do not come to the United States. It is dangerous. The border is closed. You know, Roberta Jacobson, who's on the NSC kind of doing transborder and asylum stuff, uh, had an Oval Office briefing the other week where she said, la frontera está cerrada. So, so what you're talking about and the reason that I'm, the reason that I'm kind of going through this is that in general, the question of what information about U.S. policy do potential migrants have when they're making the decision about whether to migrate is the $64,000 question. And it's always used in the United States as a way to ask, what is the perfect message that United States policymakers could send that would stop people from coming? And that's never been something that policymakers have had that much control over, because for one thing, even Americans don't understand the ins and outs of, of asylum policy. For another thing, there's a strong incentive for smugglers to either use any bits of information that could possibly be used to say, hey, things are great now, you should come. And if such information doesn't exist, to invent it. And now see, there's like the same problem of kind of too much competing information and little ability to adjudicate what is true and what is not and what is active disinformation is just as true for would-be migrants as it is for anybody else. Like I've talked to experts who are concerned that misinformation is a bigger problem for people who are considering migration now than it was in the past, because in the past it was at least getting disrupted by word of mouth. Like, oh yeah, you're seeing this in the media, but my friend just tried to get in and he got detained and deported. It appears that, that connection has been broken a little bit now which is really not good, but it's also not something that the U.S. can control. And so it can get very, very easy to cherry pick, you know, individual things. And I think that there is actually an argument to be made that the mere fact of a new non-Trump president in office, independently of anything the Biden administration did or could have said, would have created an you know, the idea that things were going to open back up again. But it can be very easy to tell a plausible story of, oh, if you looked at these particular signals from the administration, you would get the impression that things had opened up without any actual like empirical information that those are the pieces of information people had and that they did make the decision based on that. I I'm talking about messages to Americans, though. Like here is a New York Times headline that ran on January 19th. It says, Biden to announce broad plan to reverse 
Trump immigration policies. And the lead is by Michael Shear. It says, President-elect Joseph R. Biden will propose far-reaching legislation on Wednesday to give the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the United States a chance to become citizens in as little as eight years, comma, part of an ambitious and politically perilous attempt to undo the effects of President Trump's four-year assault on immigration. Now, that's a completely accurate story, right? But like we all know, I think we have all participated in Biden administration press outreach, even to an extent in Trump administration press outreach, Obama administration press outreach. This was a story that they sought, right? Like they, they wanted around Inauguration Day people to write in the American media stories about how bold and exciting these Biden administration proposals are to the like we did an episode about like they went through the effort to write this DOA immigration bill, right? Like they could have said, I want to try to communicate to the American people. We think a surge of people may come due to whatever, but like we want to tell you the American public, that we are keeping the borders closed, that there isn't being a big change here, that, you know, like, don't blame us if things get a little bit messy down the road, you know, because we can't control what smugglers say, blah, 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 blah. But like, they wanted Anglophone American citizens to read this story that they were reversing Trump's immigration policies. And like, now they're coming back around and they're like, oh, well, you know, actually, we didn't reverse Trump's immigration policies, which is true. Like, they didn't. But they seem to me to be just like, have been trapped in this system of rhetoric that they themselves devised. Can you talk through how exactly you think a message of don't blame us if things get bad down the road would have been politically better for them than what they're facing right now? No, not don't blame. They could say, look, we think that there are coyotes operating in Central America who are telling people that Joe Biden is opening up the borders. And we think Republicans are amplifying that message for political gain themselves and being counterproductive. But that is not the case. We are not reversing Trump's immigration policies. But like they they didn't want to say that. And for totally understandable reasons, right? Like new administrations come in and they exaggerate how much of a difference they're going to make from the previous administration. And they have, you know, a bunch of reasons for wanting to do that. But then like these things, these things happen. And like, I just I now feel like the message that again, like not Central Americans, but U.S. citizens are receiving is a more accurate one than the one that was put forward in January. But like, you know, you you make these choices. So, Matt, I, I think it's useful to distinguish the politics of the border from the politics of immigration within the United States, because like the, the Biden administration did a lot to change policies or at least attempted to do a lot to change policies um, for people who are already in the United States. They presented States. an ambitious plan. Right. There was a 100-day deportation moratorium. It sort got of. struck it got struck <laughs> down by it got struck down by a judge. We can get into that. I think the judge was wrong, but you know, they proposed legislation that I agree is unlikely to pass Congress. <laughs> they they did put in place new priorities for immigration enforcement for who is high, a high priority priority to be deported. And like those are I mean, we could debate about how significant they are and we could debate about what's possible when you have judges who are sabotaging these policies. But they really did make meaningful changes to what happens to undocumented immigrants who are already living in the United States. I, I think that the border is a different question. And with the possible exception of unaccompanied minors, I, I think you are right that the Biden administration policy bears a lot of resemblance to the Trump administration policy. But, I, you know, I, I just don't think it's accurate to say that they've left the Trump administration policy in, in place across the board. They have made some significant changes to how people who are already in the United States are treated. I also think it's worth pointing out that like it wasn't like people understood the Title 42 order before Biden either. Like a lot of things changed in late March of 2020. And it was very difficult to get people to understand. That, I think weeds you know, listeners tens understood of all about of it. Sure, sure. But like in general, the idea that, you know, the Biden administration would be coming in and, and saying, oh, same as previous doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily interrupt what's happened, which has been a standard political dynamic of when border arrest numbers go up, 
from the previous month, it is seen as losing control of the border. Obviously, arrests are not are not a good metric of this because arrests are the people who are successfully being apprehended. You know, there is an ongoing question about how you would measure gotaways and what actual control of the border looks like. But it's especially weird in the current era where like on the one hand, you have the Biden administration saying since April 2020, numbers have been rising and like attributing that in part to totally undefined actually Trump administration policies when what they're talking about is March 2020 things plummeted because not just the CDC order, but also like you know, continent-wide restrictions on international and domestic travel, a lot of uncertainty about the shape of this pandemic. And then since then, things have slowly kind of reestablished themselves in terms of travel patterns and the economic collapse due to COVID-19 has become a lot more stark. But like, it's not super useful to say since April 2020 numbers have been rising month on month when you're talking about a super, super low April 2020 number. And on, on the other hand, you have Republicans saying, you know, pointing to already Secretary Mayorkas acknowledgement that like right now we're on track to have the highest number of arrests in 20 years and saying, well, of course, this is a crisis. We have a lot of arrests, which again, even above and beyond the general idea that arresting a lot of people means that you're somehow losing control is particularly weird given the fact that the majority, at least, of people getting arrested are getting expelled immediately. So it's just, it's not just a kind of baseline uh, use of border arrest numbers as the metric of whether U.S. immigration policy is in control or not. It's the idea that the derivative on those numbers is particularly useful or meaningful, which is something that certainly got exacerbated under the Trump administration. President Trump himself was like famously obsessed with whether the numbers were going up or down. But it's also kind of in the nature of media, because it is the one kind of monthly news thing you can get out of the immigration bureaucracy. And it's the one measurable thing. So I, I'm not super sure that more accurate messaging over the hawkishness of initial Biden administration policy would have gotten around that because unless you're going to make the argument that those numbers wouldn't in fact be where they are right now, if they had been more accurate. Well, no, no, no. I, well, here, let me, let, me, let me put this another way, right? I, there's a question of what is the Biden administration's desired outcome? When Trump was president, right, you could talk about, well, how did he characterize numbers and, you know, was he interpreting data correctly, et cetera, et cetera. But I felt like I had a strong grasp on Donald Trump's desired outcome. And it was for zero people to obtain asylum in the United States and also for zero people to be in the United States waiting for their asylum claims to be rejected. And so he took a number of steps over the years that seemed directed at that outcome, and they got litigated, and some of them got tossed out, and some of them stuck, and he kept doing different things, diplomatic things, you know, wall-building things, right? And so you could try to assess whether or not the policies were working on those terms, and you could also try to assess what kind of human toll those policies were, were taken. You could write articles that had, like, normative takes, but also just positive ones in terms of like what was actually going on. Erica Andiola, you know, she she did a, a tweet and she said, when it comes to migration, we have two options. One, build a system that terrorizes slash dehumanizes people seeking asylum, as Trump was doing to quote unquote, send a message, which I think is more or less what Trump was doing. Or two, step up to the challenge and build a system to welcome them. So Biden is clearly not doing number two. Right. Like, as I understand it, right, like the desired policy outcome here is not that we say all who are fleeing poor living conditions in Central America are welcome to the United States and we are going to build the capacity to achieve that. But it raises the question in my mind of like, like what what is the objective of this policy? Like, what what does success look like other than that they're trying to manage domestic political complaints? So, so Matt, I think, first of all, I want to start by rejecting the dichotomy in that tweet that you read, because right. like, I think you have to understand the the magnitude of, of what's causing this problem. So like you have this huge crush of migrants coming from the Northern Triangle countries. That, that That's El Salvador, Honduras and Guatemala. And these are regions that have, I mean, there, there's 
widespread gang violence. There's corruption in Honduras. Half the country lives lives in poverty. In El Salvador, the the president has cut a deal with the gangs, where the gangs are now doing forms of law enforcement. I, I mean, you know, they, there are very good reasons why people want to get out of those countries, and like that's part of the reason why I think the Trump administration's policy of if we're just cruel enough, people will stop coming wasn't going to work because as bad as Trump was, he wasn't going to make things as bad as they were in Honduras, where you have 100,000 people who don't have homes because they, they were destroyed by hurricanes. And so Biden, you know, I mean, you can welcome some people into the United States. But I think what Biden's long term goal is, is to try to rebuild the civil society in the Northern Triangle countries. The problem is that I don't think that this administration is yet proposing solutions that are up to that task. You know, like, you know, Biden is talking about four billion dollars of aid and four billion dollars in aid just isn't going to cut it. And that's that's before you get into the fact that, like, one of the problems where you have corruption is you can't trust the government to distribute the aid in a fair way. And even if you do somehow get the aid to people, you know, in a corrupt country, people aren't going to start businesses if, if they need to bribe officials. Banks aren't going to set up a credit structure if they're afraid they're going to loan someone money that's going to be stolen for, by a gang. So, like, there's just a tremendous amount of civil society infrastructure building that has to happen, which would be an extraordinary undertaking, both in terms of money and time. I'd love for the United States to commit to a project like that, but I don't think that it's a light switch where you just like right now we have the light switch set to cruel immigration policy and you flip it to not cruel immigration policy and then you solve the problem. I mean, I think you're both right. Ian's definitely right about the long-term vision. And like Joe Biden personally has been committed to this idea of regionally integrated approach, tackling root causes, send lots of money to Central America for a long time. He was the Obama administration's point person on this in 2014. Now there is, there actually is an interesting change from the 2014 strategy that is the current Biden administration is thinking that it needs to rely less on governments for exactly the reasons Ian mentioned to kind of be the partners in that and more, you know, more reliant on civil society sources, organizations as kind of the funding conduits. And also pairing this with like more robust efforts to protect the rule of law and human rights in Central America, which is certainly a different approach to 2014 when Joe Biden standing side by side with like foreign ministers of Central American countries saying, oh, it's awful that these parents are abandoning their children by sending them northward. That's so, so sad. Everyone believes that everybody should be at home here because it's, you know, it's better for them to, to be in their home countries, like without really acknowledging the reasons people might want to flee. But it's definitely true that like this is happening on a very long timeline. The administration acknowledges that they're also doing something of a like, you know, a true root cause strategy has never been tried by pointing out, you know, fairly that like the previous aid effort didn't really get rolling until the Trump administration. And then he pulled the plug on it in 2018, although that itself speaks to just how long it takes to get these kinds of things in place. But there is a big medium term gap here, because if you're acknowledging that ultimately you want to, and and frankly, in, in terms of the way they express the ultimate goal, it is not that different from the way that certain Trump administration officials expressed the ultimate goal rhetorically. It's just that like, which parts of that rhetoric are actually being turned into policy is different. Both the Trump and Biden administrations are saying that ultimately, there shouldn't be a big crush of asylum seekers at the United States because people should be able to stay in their home countries. And if they do need to leave, they should be able to seek asylum closer to home. The Trump administration said, and the best way to do that is to force them. The Biden administration is saying, and therefore we're going to build up capacity in kind of vague and not super clear on timetable ways in other countries. But both in terms of the politics of like monthly numbers and in terms of the logistics of like what happens once people get to the United States and what the capacity is there are much obviously like much more short term than that. And it's not clear what the thing in the medium term is. And this is where I think Matt is correct. They really are thinking about domestic backlash, like reading over this memo, you know, this morning I'm going, okay, is the plan to actually keep Title 42, the CDC order in place until they have stood up you know, asylum 
offices in El Salvador. Like, is that actually what's going on here, even though ostensibly the CDC order is supposed to be about the state of public health in the United States and in Mexico? Is the plan that they are going to keep their fingers crossed and hope that next spring doesn't have the same kind of rise in migration as this spring has? Or are they now setting themselves up for a situation of they end the CDC order at some point in the next year and then you know, the exact same things that were true this year in terms of reasons people would want to leave are true next year. And then Republicans are saying, you yourselves admitted that the CDC order was keeping things on track and you derailed them. It's just, it's it's a little bit, you know, the, the lack of a medium term strategy means that you end up boxing yourself in on policy for political reasons. And that is honestly not something that like top administration officials could say with a, and and be believed because they can have all the ideas in the world. The question is how long it's going to take to implement them. And we're still early enough into the administration and without a whole lot of appointed officials, frankly, at DHS still to, to really kind of have that capacity. But the problem with thinking about this as a root cause of situation is it gives you no answers to the people who are here now, are coming tomorrow, or who are on the point of deciding whether to leave. I, I, I was just looking up like basic numbers, right? And like, you know, El Salvador has less than half the per capita GDP of Mexico, right? And Honduras and Guatemala are poorer than El Salvador. So even a like very successful root causes agenda in those countries would take quite a while for those countries to achieve convergence. I mean, not convergence with the United States, which like no country achieves, but convergence with Mexico, from which irregular migration has fallen like incredibly, right? I mean, people do like stop migrating when the differential gets modest. It doesn't need to go down to zero. Um, Then you could talk about, you know, crime and corruption. Uh, But obviously, like Mexico, I think rather infamously, has a lot of very serious organized crime and political corruption issues. I think uh, the United States was trying to arrest their defense minister just the other day. They did arrest him and then they had to, then they turned him over back to Mexico in exchange for promises of uh, Mexican prosecution that the Mexican government promptly broke. Right, yes. Um, and then you look at uh, Afghanistan, right, where we've been at war for 20 years trying to stand up a government that, I, I don't know, that like Americans will a- approve of, but that also can fight against the Taliban. Like, this is a, a challenging situation. And and I think that to say that it hasn't really been tried I mean, there's there's something to the idea that it hasn't been tried, but I think the general concept of the United States of America will turn a foreign country into a really well-governed, human rights-respecting and prosperous country is something that, in fact, has been tried like quite extensively and either is impossible or else like the relevant people don't know how to do it. But like definitely in Mexico, we have been trying for like a really, really long time in different floundering ways to like do what the U.S. government thinks would be the creation of a Mexican state that is like good somehow. It has not produced like great results, right? It just seems like whatever our regional policy should be in Central America, it should be good, I think. I'm I'm like, I'm all for that. (laughs) Hot takes. But like the idea that like that's going to be your answer to a question that involves like both like people in desperate situations who are in transit like now to people who are freaked out about migration to people who are suing about the conditions in which people are being held like it doesn't it doesn't work like the timelines don't just mismatch like they're not even close right like it's not like okay give us six months and we'll fix it give us nine months like give us what like a generation like it doesn't it doesn't make sense like you, you have to make asylum policy for the here and now and you need to have some kind of explanation that you can give, I mean, to Americans, not just, I mean, the challenges of communicating in Central America are are very difficult, but you, you have to have some account of like what you're, what you're saying to Americans you are trying 
to do. Because as you were saying, Dara, it's like right now, this CDC order is being wielded as a kind of a like a shield, right? Or an all-purpose rebuttal. But like that can't last forever. Or maybe it can, right? Now, if you want to say, okay, I'm going to have a pretextual CDC order, I guess you can't quite say it's pretextual. But the um, the Roberts Court upheld some fairly pretextual immigration restrictions under Trump. So like that is an approach to policy that works if that's what you really mean. Uh, But I don't think it's what they mean. Like, I I think that would be unfair to Biden's team, but it's not clear to me what it is they do mean. Can I force pivot this to talk about like what's actually happening to kids right now? Because I think that there is that this is where I think a lot of a lot of kind of left of center to left stuff is happening and being said, and it's good to kind of have some, have just a good sense here of like what the, what the problems are. The kids, they are being detained. So the actual point in the system that is way above capacity right now is that when kids are arrested by border patrol agents and by kids here, we do mean anyone under 18 and it's, Obviously, like that's a bright line that exists as a bright line for very good legal reasons. And it also can, on the one hand, be used to characterize everybody as 16 and 17 year olds, which they're not. And on the other hand, be used to characterize everyone as six and seven year olds, which they're also not. But like kids generally are only supposed to be in Border Patrol custody for 72 hours except in emergency circumstances. But like the point of emergency circumstances is that you're going to try to get out of those as soon as possible. They're then supposed to go to the the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services. And we're talking here about unaccompanied. Right, unaccompanied children. So it's not children who've been separated from It is not children who've been separated from, from parents. There is an ongoing question about whether the law compels the United States to take a kid, take like a niece from her uncle if they're not, if they right. don't have paperwork saying they're a legal guardian, the interpretation of which the Trump administration did a total 180 on in 2020, and it's not 100% clear which side of that the Biden administration is on. But the Department of Health and Human Services is then responsible for like medium term care and for identifying and vetting the closest relative in the United States who they're, they're then going to place the kid with. There are actually updated stats on this now, like in 80% of cases, you know, they're, t- they're going to a relative or, or family friend. In 40% of cases, that it, it is their parent or legal guardian who is here in the United States to whom the kid is being released. So this isn't a like putting tens of thousands of kids in, in foster homes or like putting them with stranger situation. The challenge right now is, first of all, simultaneously, HHS has more beds currently contracted for children than it's ever had before, but it can't use most of them because of COVID restrictions. And the federal government announced a couple of weeks ago that as far as it was concerned, those shelters could waive their COVID capacity restrictions, could like go back up to pre-COVID capacities. But the administration has said that it's not really as easy as that for any given facility. They have to work with their state licensing board so that they can increase their capacity without losing their licenses, yada, yada, yada. So they're working on increasing capacity in that system. But it's going at, uh, one administration official said on Friday, like they're looking to add hundreds of beds worth of capacity a week, which they admit is not sufficient for the current numbers of kids who are coming in or the numbers that they anticipate coming in. That's creating a big, big, big bottleneck in Border Patrol custody, which is the place where everybody thinks kids should not be. That's where you have the kind of horror stories. of. There were some stories about the facility that's opened up in Donna, Texas for unaccompanied kids run by Border Patrol. And, you know, kids were there for several days without being able to see daylight. You know, they don't have pillows or toothbrushes, conditions that no one believes that children should be in and that do pose serious health risks. Like these are the facilities that led to the deaths of two young children in custody in December 2018. And so the, the risk that something really bad will happen is kind of ever present. Uh, There are efforts that the administration is currently taking to, you know, increase capacity by creating shorter term HHS run facilities. And that's where a lot of the kind of political struggle is, because 
some of those facilities have histories of not being great places for kids either. The facility in Carrizo Springs, Texas, for example, was a big focus of activism under the Trump administration and has now been reopened. The more longer term facility in Homestead, Florida, was kind of the most notorious HHS facility under the Trump administration. And there are now reports that President Biden himself has said, no, we're not reopening that. That's not okay. So there's something of a tension between expanding capacity and like not, you know, giving into the same punitive conditions that characterize the Trump era. But there's also just a difficulty in successfully clarifying what the various bodies that are responsible for taking care of kids are and articulating expectations for how humane that treatment should be. Because just because something is being subcontracted out by HHS doesn't necessarily mean that the conditions are going to be like ideal from the perspective of activists. But at the same time, there is a broad consensus that being in HHS contractor custody is better than being in Border Patrol custody. I I think the striking thing about everything you're saying, Dara, is like this requires investment. If we were to design the best possible system, you know, if the best interest of the child were the sole consideration here, if you think about what would go into that, like you, you, you don't just need housing facilities for, for, for these children. You need to provide them with adequate nutrition. You need, if they're going to be there for a long period of time, you need an education system so that they're prepared, you know, to, to go into schools. You need to give them medical care. And I mean, that requires money and money frequently requires congressional appropriations. The nightmare, I mean, I, I don't have to guess what Republicans would say if, if, if you try to propose spending money for teachers, for immigrant children. But I mean, even from the left, I mean. Oh, Biden's opening schools for undocumented immigrants while the teachers unions keep them closed for your kids. Exactly right. And also from the left, like, I mean, I can imagine how someone like AOC would react if Biden has a line in his budget that says detention facilities for children. Because what we're ultimately talking about here is like you need to have a place to put children that like provides for their humanitarian needs, but that ultimately involves us accepting the fact that we're going to have some permanent infrastructure that exists for the purpose of detaining children. And I I mean, there's, you know, there's a certain emotional gut punch to admitting that we're now that the sort of country that that does that. I just want to clarify quickly, the Biden administration has actually been asked recently if they are planning to ask Congress for money, and they've said that they're not at that point yet. So they believe that they can kind of optimize their way out of this problem. And I've also, you know, I've talked to some folks who think that there are lots of ways within the existing process that they could get better at placing kids with their family members more quickly, uh, which is going to not only ease the capacity crunch, but is also going to really moot the the idea that kids are being detained if you can really demonstrate, no, we're as soon as humanly possible getting these kids with relatives. It doesn't kind of get at the, the broader political difficulty you're talking about of like, Having children in government custody is going to be a political trigger, regardless of the kind of nuances of or the options available. I'm curious when the Biden administration says that they can solve at least, you know, some of this problem by finding efficiencies. Do you believe them and how much efficiencies are there to be found? So I don't know, because this gets very logistical very quickly. And Mm -hmm. that means that they're just the amount of information I'd have to have is not something that you'd be likely to get from the government under any circumstances, much less when children are concerned. There's kind of this like additional difficulty in figuring stuff out because of, you know, various privacy concerns. There are things they're doing that seem like they are likely to be useful in finding efficiencies. They're placing HHS employees at border patrol facilities so that they can, as early in the process as possible, talk to kids ask them, do you have like a contact for your relative in the United States? Can you put me in touch with your parents? And so I can ask them with, you know, who they would want to place you with to like start that ball rolling as quickly as possible. They've also officially rescinded a memo that was on the books, although toward the end of the Trump administration, not really being enforced, that allowed HHS to share information with DHS for immigration enforcement, which had earlier in the Trump administration actually led to parents saying, yes, you have my child, please give my child to me and getting arrested. How much that's going to work, I think, 
gets into the much bigger question of the of again how efficiently policy changes are getting communicated to people and you know i'm i'm not willing to put a lot of stock in that the other thing that i'm hearing frankly in terms of just like finding efficiencies without more funds is that one of the things we don't know is how many children who are coming to the US as unaccompanied kids have parents who are either in Mexico and decided to send their kids because they couldn't travel as a whole family, whether that means they were already waiting in Mexico under, you know, MPP or like arrived and then were told were expelled, or how many are aware that if they come as a family, they will not be allowed to enter, but if they send their child, they will, the child will be allowed to enter. And so there is an argument, and we don't have the empirics to really measure how big an effect that would be, but like there is a logical argument that if you stopped expelling families under the CDC order, you would not have as many unaccompanied kids coming in. And but you know, I, I think this kind of uh consideration, right, about, you know, how do you how do you want to handle uh the, the unaccompanied children to me relates to the lack of clarity on what the medium term goals are, right? That if, you know, if some horrible fire broke out in in Windsor, Ontario, and it led a bunch of people to stream across the bridge into Detroit, and so you suddenly had these, like, refugees popping up there, right? Like, there would be a question, a logistical question of, like, where do you put them up? And there would be a political question of, like, how much funds do you invest in doing that? And there would be, like, a trade-off, like, how closely do you want to monitor these Canadians who've shown up in a chaotic way without papers. And, you know, there might be criminals in with them, there, there, there might not, whatever it would be. But there would be a clear consensus that like the end goal of that process was that the fire department will put out the fire in Windsor, and the people will go back home to Canada, right? And that's, you know, a, like emergency border crossing, right? The issue that we have, or at least one of the issues that we have is that there's not there's an interplay or at least perceived to be an interplay between how detained asylum seekers are treated in the United States and how many asylum seekers show up right i mean that's the needle the obama administration was having a lot of trouble threading right trump uh resolved the dilemma, I guess, by just deciding to optimize for only one thing. But it's a if you don't have a clear answer as to like what you were what you were trying to happen, not like in the long run, where what you're trying to happen is that like Guatemala just becomes an amazing country and nobody would ever want to leave. But like, you know, in 2024, like what is the desired situation, right? It's hard to know what even to ask for, right? Like how to design this because, you know, as a how do you take care of a child situation, clearly releasing them into the custody of some kind of relatives is like, like as a parent, right? Like, like that is the right way to handle a child, not some kind of HHS subcontractor. But if your concern is that you're creating a pipeline through which people are sending their children so they can go live with their aunts and uncles, which is like a totally, like my great grandfather was sent as an unaccompanied minor to the United States with the expectation that he would go live with his uncle. Like it's a totally normal thing that has happened throughout American history. But if we're trying to get people to not do that, then we have to not let them go do that. And it strikes me that like, you know, we're now in a second Democratic administration in a row that kind of wants to say different things about this, depending on who they're talking to. Um, I think this gets back to what I was talking about earlier about the information ecosystem and what Ian was talking about in terms of you know, what are sometimes called the push factors, the various reasons that people mm -hmm. would need to flee regardless of where they're fleeing to. And since 2014, there has generally been a pattern of there's a rise in interests at the border. It causes a political, you know, brouhaha in the United States. Immigration is generally a very low salience political issue unless there's like a thing that happens and then it becomes a very high salience political issue. That whole thing happens. And then in response to the political brouhaha domestically, the government cracks down and numbers go down again and, you know, after the crackdown and then slowly come back up. This isn't that. 
what we're seeing and have been seeing, you know, since the initial stuff of last spring, which in retrospect, I think is fair to say, we can really attribute not as much to the CDC order as to these broader continent wide things has led to a big rise in the number of people getting apprehended in the midst of what from the kind of word of mouth pipeline experience should be getting communicated as a crackdown, right? Like families aren't getting in. And the way that the previous crackdown model worked was once people were saying to their relatives, this isn't going to work, I tried and it didn't work, don't come. That's when you really see the benefits or like the, the kind of real effects of a crackdown, not so much just by, you know, just by the fact of announcing it. So if that is getting disrupted, it's not super clear whether this is because the quote unquote push factors have just gotten like unconscionably bad, whether it's because of changes in the way information and misinformation is being sent around that we still don't fully anticipate, or whether this really is a situation of, well, the existence of any top line political messaging in the dovish direction from government officials is serving as a quote unquote pull factor. Like in theory, that's a possibility, but because it hasn't traditionally been the case, it's worth thinking of as a question to which these other possibilities exist and are going to have to get worked out first. I, I imagine the problem's going to get worse in the coming months. Um, and I and, and for for the best possible reason, like what's going to happen in the next couple months is that the United States's vaccine rollout is going to succeed and our economy is probably going to just boom. And like people are going to want to be in the United States and in poorer countries like and I mean, we're being blamed for hoarding vaccines or by for hoarding vaccine information technology. But, you know, in poorer countries, they are not going to have the vaccine rollout happen as fast as it's happening here. And their economies are not going to be booming like ours. And I mean, maybe there's an even more optimistic story to be told here. Which is that as when you have the sort of superlative GDP growth that the United States might experience for the next year or two, cultural politics tends to wane and like countries tend to become more generous. And so maybe the American people will just be open to a more generous border policy. But like I suspect that in the near term, the situation in the Northern Triangle is either going to stay the same or get worse. And the situation in the United States is going to become potentially awesome. And to the extent that a disparity is causing people to migrate, there's going to be a really big disparity there. Yeah, I mean, I the good news is that if you believe that a big factor in the current, uh, you know, like that a big factor for people coming now is the idea that Biden is in office and therefore things will change, that might have shifted people who might have come later in the year a little bit earlier. I also think that we still don't fully understand kind of the ways in which last year was weird and whether this is some kind of deferred, you know, migration among people who would have been coming last year anyway. But like, I definitely think that anyone who thinks this isn't going to get from a baseline numerical perspective, that this isn't going to be a bigger question a few months from now is not thinking, you know, like is, is just not thinking about it. And so it's the question between now and then is a, does the Biden administration really ramp up capacity so that what is a crunch right now at a smaller number of kids isn't a crunch at a bigger number of kids or families and, or B does the political conversation somehow get reset so that the number of people coming in is no longer the way that we think about whether something is a quote unquote crisis or not. Well, I mean, I think the third option is to an extent that the diplomatic dynamic changes and, Mm. you know, we go back to externalizing, but with some nicer, more Biden-esque way in which we call it root causes. Yeah, that's that is certainly an interesting uh, possibility, although I think one that I was more certain was going to happen before seeing their rhetoric in their first couple of weeks in office, which does appear to be boxing themselves in against that a little bit more than I thought. All right, let's take our break and uh, return with a white paper. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot. 
even if you're listening to the weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. All right. So today's white paper, this is by Anne Case and Angus Deaton, who some of y'all might recognize as the authors of a book called Deaths by Despair. And this paper builds off of the research in that book. So the title, which also sort of substitutes as an abstract for the paper, is Life Expectancy in Adulthood is Falling for Those Without a Bachelor's Degree, But As Educational Gaps Have Widened, Racial Gaps Have Narrowed. So to break that down a bit, what we are seeing is we're seeing the emergence of a kind of educated aristocracy in the United States where if you have a college degree, I mean, I maybe shouldn't use the word aristocracy because there's some fluidity there. But if you have a college degree, your life expectancies are improving. The gap in the amount of money you can earn, like 30 years ago, if you had a college degree, you could be expected to earn about 40 percent more over the course of your life. Now it is 80 percent more. And while there are still gaps in life expectancy based on race, white people do tend to live longer than black people do. The gaps based on education are now much wider than the gaps based on race. So if you just look at black men, for example, black men live about four years longer than they did in 1990, and they live about two years shorter than than white men. But the gap between black men who have a college degree and white men who do not have a college degree is greater than the gap between white men who have a college degree and black men who have a college degree. So we still have significant racial problems in this country, but the at least measured numerically in in terms of life expectancy, the education gap is starting to become a larger factor than the racial gap. Before we get into kind of the broader implications of, you know, the idea of a realignment. I do want to point out, to state the obvious, this paper's data set ends in 2018. Uh, there was a pretty right. obvious yeah, like, major yeah. change to life expectancy uh, in 2020. And one that preliminary data has found was much worse for Blacks and Latinos than it was for whites in the US. And like, Worse for Latino Americans than for Black Americans, which is like interesting because historically there's been something of a demographic paradox that researchers are familiar with, wherein like Latinos have generally a longer life expectancy than whites, despite having bigger stressors on health that appears to have at very least not insulated Latinos. And there's increasing evidence. Actually, my former ProPublica colleague, Akila Johnson, just had a story in the Washington Post today about... Latinos who are like in the prime of life getting cut down by COVID. So this is, we don't know whether this is a picture, a snapshot of a period that is now ended in American history and is now going to be replaced by this COVID or post-COVID normal, especially because we don't, you know, we still don't really know who all got COVID last year. We don't know what the long-term effects are for people who had moderate to severe cases, but didn't actually die. And the other thing I think is really interesting, if you look at the details of these life expectancy curves, is that the change for white men in particular starts a little bit early. It starts like around the time of the Great Recession, which is what you would expect, like 2009. The change for black men happens later. In the beginning of the 20-teens, the black male life expectancy is continuing to rise. It then sharply declines around 2013, which is interesting if you think about the pathway of the opioid epidemic, right? The public narrative on this always lagged the reality on the ground by a few years, but 
the basic structure of it is what was initially understood as a problem of people getting addicted to prescription drugs and turning to street drugs when they lost access to prescription drugs became a broader heroin and then fentanyl epidemic. And because there is research suggesting that Black Americans were a little bit insulated from the first phase of the opioid epidemic because they get underprescribed pain medication because of weird racial biases about like who feels pain and who doesn't, they are absolutely being affected by the heroin and fentanyl phases. And it's really noticeable in this data, the point where it became primarily a quote unquote street drug epidemic and just how much that has meant for the life expectancy of black men across the board. It's important to read this paper, keeping in mind that it is all pre-COVID. I also think it is important to read the COVID data in light of what we found in this paper. Right. Which is that now there is I I mean, it's really worth saying there is a gap between the life expectancy of college educated African-Americans and college educated whites. It's visible in this paper. It's just that it's modest and it is narrowing. Right. But there's a big compositional difference. Right. The share of the white population that has college degrees is much larger than the share of of the black population that has college degrees. So when you look at COVID, right, because we know that COVID risk is very aligned with your job. Right. In a in a very specific way. Right. What makes this case of Deaton research interesting is that it's like not totally obvious why having a college degree should make your life expectancy be longer. And so they have this whole thing about despair and economics. And it's like this whole complicated research program, right? Whereas with COVID, it's like insanely simple. Right. Like I am at low risk of covid because I'm a writer guy and I'm on my Zoom versus somebody who's working at the grocery store. Right. It's like so obvious that like you wouldn't bother to write a book about it. But that means you have to consider that like when you're looking at these statistics. Right. And in particular, the fact that Latinos who for not super well understood reasons have like better population health have died at incredibly high rates of of COVID is just a reminder that like infectious diseases are a big deal and occupational risk is is a really big deal. So we're going to have to like redo this whole statistical exercise with our 2020 data until we really understand what happened. And right now, I mean, I I am a participant in the hot takes economy as, as much as the next person. But it's like, there's incredible desire to look at the information that's available and then connect it to like whatever you quote unquote know to be the larger truths about American society. But like one of the just like the thing Case and Deaton are showing us with this is that like you don't really know until you look in some detail. And we are not, I think, going to have the information, vital statistics report with a with a big lag. And it will be interesting to see what the sort of education-specific racial demographics or vice versa are. And there's a lot of different ways you could imagine it going for a lot of different reasons. But like you you just you like you see in these charts that like you can be pushed and pulled in in different kinds of different kinds of ways and for different kinds of reasons. Uh, because people die for totally different reasons, right? Like this motion was mostly about opioids. The opioids switched from being a prescription drug to being a street drug. But like now suddenly people mostly die because of a respiratory pandemic, which has a completely different dynamic. This may be a a weird connection that my brain drew, but like when I read this paper, one of the first things that popped in my head was this bizarre op ed that Marco Rubio had this week where he essentially said that like Amazon is too woke and because Amazon is too woke, they should be punished by having to get a union. The reason I bring that up is that. I think that you're starting to see a Republican, a conservative politics emerge that tries to come up with a social conservative explanation for the data in this paper. The traditional liberal explanations are like unionization has declined. Some people blame globalization. You know, obviously racism and racial disparities play a huge role here. But like the social conservative explanation that's starting to emerge is that 
liberal culture, woke culture is like somehow disrupting communities that historically have thrived. I mean, Josh Hawley is probably the most articulate proponent of this theory. He talks about how like liberal culture is destroying our religion and our sense of place in certain communities. And I mean, I find it kind of ridiculous to come up with a cultural example for what I think is pretty clearly an economic problem. But this rhetoric is really potent. I I mean, one thing that I think Case and Deaton have shown is that when there's a lack of economic opportunity, certain things happen to society. I mean, you see more children born out of wedlock. You see less marriage. You see higher drug use. And when there was a lack of opportunity in black communities, these things were blamed on black culture. I mean, Republicans don't want to blame their own base's culture now that these sorts of things are arising in white communities. So they've decided to blame liberal culture. But like, I I mean, again, it sounds silly, but like this kind of cultural explanations for economic problems, I mean, it, it drove the war on drugs. It, it drove a lot of our racist policies in the, the 70s through, I mean, at least the 90s and, 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 and probably later on. So it can be very, very potent. And, you know, I just hope that Democrats, I mean, I think it shows the need for liberals to have a solution for these communities, you know, and an economic solution for these communities that that are struggling, because if not, the explanation that can come in for why this is happening can lead to really just terrible policy outcomes. The one thing I want to say, though, about the classic case Deaton findings mm-hmm. is that educational attainment is like going up during this period. So the set of people with bachelor's degrees is not like a constant group of people. And I've always felt that they don't like fully grapple with those like compositional dynamics, right? That like, if you go all the way back to 1940, like people with no college degree, that's like almost everybody, right? And as you go like forward and forward in time, you're seeing an increase, like a, a, a still large, but like a narrower kind of group of the population who's suffering, I think, to some extent from like negative selection for conscientiousness and stable families and things like that. Um, it, it used to be the case that like it would be very normalized for a person to graduate high school and not attempt any further higher education, which is not really the the, the case now. And it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think it's tricky to characterize exactly what is going on. I mean, whenever you see life expectancy going down, you know that like something bad is happening because the medical technology improves over time. But like the, the pure gap analysis, I think, is a little trickier than you know, then you, uh, these are fairly sophisticated charts, but there's like even more, I think, statistics that you could do on it. Education is good. I mean, I have a bachelor's degree. I, I recommend getting one if you can. It's great. But like you've got a law degree. You've got I have a law degree. degree. Yeah, you're probably going <laughs> to live to be like 3000. Right? Ian was yeah. conspicuously not endorsing getting a law degree. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, law degree. Don't do that. Bachelor's degrees are great. But like, I mean, here's the political nightmare that I can imagine coming out of this is like right now, about a third of the country has a bachelor's degree. You can imagine a world where like maybe 55 percent of the country has a bachelor's degree. And then you really are at danger of having a kind of educated aristocracy. I mean, it would be more than half the country, but more than half the country is a majority. It's enough to elect a government that will entrench its own needs and that may leave behind the needs of the 45 percent that's going to fall deeper into the pit that this paper describes. So like David Shore has has, has said a lot of really interesting stuff about how our cultural politics are shifting as a larger percentage of people are college educated. And so ideas, cultural ideas that are only popular amongst the college educated set wind up dominating the Democratic Party. And I mean, that's fine, I guess. I mean, like culture for the most part doesn't hurt people in the same way that economics do. But if that same phenomenon were to occur within our economic policy, 
I, I mean, that, that that would be a catastrophe. Yes, I'm against that. Yep. <laughs> that would, in fact, be catastrophic. Uh, with that, I think well, this has been a long episode, good episode, good discussion. Um, thank you, Ian, for joining us. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Eric Janikas. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. Bye.